All right. I'm, I'm excited about this. Thank you for doing it. It's my pleasure, Chris. I'm going to jump right in. I saw the notice on Facebook that the systematics, we're about to see them. So tell us that. Tell us about it. When does it come out? And it's all done, yes? Yeah, it's all done. I'm answering editorial queries right now. So I expect it to, you know, come out maybe, you know, six months or so, uh, somewhere between six months and a year, I would imagine it should be out. Mm. So tell me about the process. When did you, obviously you wanted to do it for a long time. When did you really start? And yeah, yeah, let's, let's just kind of narrate that, that, that story. Yeah, there's there's a trajectory leading up to it. I mean, um, I, I can't say I planned it all from the beginning of this way, but it, and I was sort of figuring it out as I went. But it, as it turned out, I think it turned out well. Uh, you know, way back in 2006, I wrote "Baptizing the Spirit," and when writing that, I just wanted to ask the question: um, You know, what is unique about Pentecostal theology? What is our unique accent? Uh, and I was very moved by a little book that Oscar Kuhlman wrote, uh, you know, the great Basel New, New Testament scholar um, uh, about unity and diversity in the church. And he likened the diversity of theological accents in the global church to the diversity of spiritual gifts in a local congregation. Mm. And he said each church communion has its own unique accents to offer the global church and it's sort of how they are gifted to bless the whole and so it got me thinking you know well when we think of the wesleyans we think of you know sanctification and when we think of uh, the reformed tradition we think of the sovereignty of god uh, the lutherans justification and and so on um, and, you know, Pentecostals focus on Pentecost. It focuses on the, the overflowing and abundant gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I thought, you know, um, to do a, a theology uh, that is faithful to what's distinctive about us, um, there has to be a focus on Pentecost. It doesn't mean that I don't draw from others. Yeah. And, 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 and it doesn't mean that I'm not blessed by them and that I don't incorporate uh, in 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 my own way, their own accents, and and my way of doing Pentecostal theology is by no means the only way of doing it because I think theology and is, is an aesthetic mm. uh, as well as an analytical um, thing. Absolutely. So there's different there's there's lots of space for different visions, but but my way of doing it, uh, theology from a Pentecostal location is is to focus on pentecost the the overflowing gift of the spirit that occurs there mm. and so i i try to lay that out in baptizing the spirit and then uh in the books that followed i i try to draw out that vision and try to look at you know how looking at say justification by grace mm-hmm. from the vantage point of pentecost what that would look like or yeah. um the or or christology uh, with Pentecost as the culminating event, uh, what that might look like. And um, finally, I got to the place where I realized I've just got to do the the full-blown system. So you do, you have justified in the spirit, Jesus, the spirit baptizer, the church. And also, in the yeah, spirit. and also the spirit baptized church, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Where, I, where I do the ecclesiology from that angle. 
Mm-hmm. And then finally, the systematic. So at what point in there did you realize, okay, yeah, I've got to do the, the whole project? I, I, exactly. Right after the Spirit Baptized Church, um, mm. I started thinking, you know, I really do need to write a, a larger statement. Yeah. Um, and be, for one thing, I was already, I mean, you know how it is after you write a book, you never stop writing a book. Because <laughs> even after it's out, for years later, you're always thinking of ways in which you can improve it. Oh, absolutely. And, and you almost wish you could rewrite it a couple of years later. <laughs> absolutely. So, so, you know, already um, a year or two after the Spirit Baptized Church, I was thinking uh, that both in terms, you know, in terms of all of the books previously, uh, I, I began thinking of sharper and clearer ways of expressing those things. Uh, so I wanted an opportunity to do that, but I also mm-hmm. wanted to expand it to a, a larger vision. And so, so I'm going to ask you two questions here at this point. Yeah. One is, for those of us who know your work fairly well, what's going to surprise us in the system? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then those of us who don't know your work very well, yeah. what is your take? You mentioned this. Yeah. You said my way of doing Pentecostal theology. So for those, that's let's right. start with that question. The people who okay. don't know Frank Machia's work well. Okay. Talk to us about what your way is. And then I want to come to that question about those of us who know it fairly well. What are we going to get caught up guard by? Well, for me, uh, Pentecost is the culminating event. Um, now, I've heard, I've had people ask me, why not make the Perusia the culminating event? And my answer is, when we get there, I will. So <laughs> we're, we're not there yet. Yeah. I don't know how I do theology from a location I don't yet occupy. Yes. So, <laughs> and my only way of accessing the Perusia is by way of Pentecost right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where we live. Uh, that's our location. And uh, if the I tell my students, if theology is still a thing <laughs> when the kingdom comes, I'm not sure I understand. Uh, I'll be doing theology from from that vantage point in the time. <laughs> yeah, all the books will be rewritten yet again. Exactly. We get to the end. Yes. Exactly. Um, and so that's my conviction. Hmm. And um, so uh, you know, when I when I do Christology, for example, um, I'm asking the question: uh, How does the incarnation, or the anointing at the Jordan, or the crucifixion, or the resurrection? How does, I'm, I'm not only asking what that contributes in its own right, each step, yeah. but I'm also asking how does that set up what happens at Pentecost? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it that, that's happening here that will help me understand where that's going to lead and how it, how it climaxes there? Um, and I found that there were some, some interesting insights that came from that. Uh, for example, the crucifixion. Um, uh, and I was reading Pannenberg on this, and Pannenberg talks about how in the death of Jesus on the cross, he doesn't just represent humanity as an amorphous mass, hmm. that he represents humanity in all of its particularity and all of its diversity. Um, he is coming into solidarity yeah. with, with all of us uh, in all of our uniqueness. And that comes out in certain texts like Revelation 5, I think it's verse 10, where it says he purchased for God people from every tribe and nation and tongue mm-hmm. so that he is definitely on the cross 
winning freedom for all of us in all of our unique contexts and particularity. And is that not an insight that is, in a sense, read backwards from Pentecost to the atonement? Mm. It, it, in other words, it's it's how the you know, it's how the Pentecostal church was able to look back at the atonement and realize what was happening there. Yeah. The fact uh, that the spirit rests on all flesh, sons exactly. and daughters, you know, near exactly. and far off. That and, yes. must be what Jesus has accomplished. Exactly. And and that he himself is our peace, as Paul mm -hmm. says in Ephesians 2, making the two one or making the many one. Yeah. Uh, while while not dissolving the many. And that at the cross, he becomes that peace uh, with all of that wonderful uh, diversity in mind. Um, and so so there, there were some unique insights that came into play when looking at the various events of, of Christ's uh, sojourn um, with Pentecost at the horizon. Yeah, uh, and so so that that became sort of a guiding principle for me. That I, if I were to talk about how I do theology, it's yeah. how I do it. So, talk. I, I, one of the pieces that I have students return to over and over again is the piece you wrote about Pentecost and Babel. I don't know if that shows up in the systematics, but where you you talk about the ways in which Pentecost is not the overturning of Babel exactly as its fulfillment. Say a little bit about that, and does that come up in the systematics or or not directly? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure I'm getting that word. Did you say battle? The Tower of Babel. Oh, Babel, Babel. Yeah, I was hearing battle. I was hearing... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that, that Zoom gives us the... Yeah, the Zoom gets a little glitchy. Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah, you Babel. talk about that. Yeah, 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 the promise of Babel. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, that definitely comes into play here. And uh, where that connection became clear to me is uh, Acts 17. Hmm. There in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he yeah. talks about how um, uh, all of the various peoples um, in their in their wanderings, that God uh, set the boundaries of their existence and provided for them along their paths. And he did this so that they would seek after him and perhaps find him, mm -hmm. though he is not far from all of us, the God of Pentecost. And um, and so what Paul is arguing here is that, um, you know, God is not just the God of Israel. And that Babel, which is the supreme story that talks about the dispersing of the peoples and all of the various journeys that they end up taking, that in judgment, in scattering them throughout the world, um, God is going to provide the conditions in which they will discover him anew. Hmm. Not the way that they wished to define things at Babel, but discover God anew on God's terms through all of their paths uh, and all of the suffering that may accompany that and all of the goodness that they experience as well. They, they, they will begin to seek God the true God, hmm. to discover who God really is on his terms, not to make a name for themselves, but to yeah. discover what the divine name means for them. Hmm. And that became, for me, the significance of Babel for Pentecost. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I love that. 
So I, I told you I wanted to ask general orientation for those who don't know your work well. Now, for those who've read you before, what, what are we going to be surprised by? Or what surprised you as oh. you were writing it? Was there anything yeah. that you thought, hey, I didn't know I even thought that, or I didn't know I would say that? <laughs> um, yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one thing is I think my Christology and um, ecclesiology, where I've you know written the most on, um, and to some extent, pneumatology. I think uh, in the system, my vision in those areas is sharper and crisper, and I think in in some ways clearer. Hmm. Um, and so there's there's something about crunching it down into a smaller space and getting right to the point, yeah, and bringing it to bear on it, you know, thoughts that I had in the years following writing those books. Um, uh, so the the reader is going to find, I think, a clearer understanding of what I'm doing there. Um, but I also take um, three full chapters at the beginning and good sized chapters where I lay out the theological terrain. And I've never written on that before. Hmm. So I have an opening chapter on what theology is. Okay. Um, a good sized chapter. And then I have two subsequent chapters after that discussing the various theological methods that have um, sort of become classic to the modern era. Uh, you know, and, and what I did is I did not want to give textbook definitions. Yeah, yeah. So I dug out all the books from my library, blew off the dust. And I read Schleiermacher again, and I even read Bard again after I had read him so many times. Um, and I read uh, uh, Tillich again and uh, read, uh, you know, the, the great uh, towering figures in liberation and contextual theology and post-liberalism, Lindbeck and Fry, and actually worked through those. It, I took about two years hmm. to work thoroughly through all of those works and i i could have written a whole book on yeah just um, yeah just to, so i had to really crunch that stuff down to get it into two chapters um and so i i did that purposely because precisely because i wanted to um bring to to bear on that system things that i've never written on before and substantially so that people can see how i lay out the the modern situation theologically right from so that's new that all that's new mm. um and then uh, uh things like eschatology even even soteriology uh my my book is narrowly focused on justification so i had to deal with other issues right um and always drilling down into the primary sources all the time so what students will get when reading my system is hearing the theologians that I discuss in their own voice yeah. and not just hearing sort of uh, pat, you know, sort of, you know, standard stereotypical textbook descriptions. Uh, yeah, so which I'm guessing Bart, I'm guessing Bart's a major dialogue partner still. Who else, who else Bart, would you say is at the table yeah. with you when you're doing this? Yeah, good question. Pottenberg is pretty big, as well as Moltmann. But I have to say that Bart is probably the dominant figure. But I, I try to draw the church fathers. Um, hmm. I have to say the fathers are everywhere. 
And um, that, that happened with my Christology. Yeah. Because when I wrote my Christology, I just felt I had to drill down into the fathers. Yeah. There's no other way. And um, it was a humbling experience. I, I spent a couple of years reading the fathers on Christology before I even started writing. Hmm. And it, there's so much on the father. There's so much from the fathers in my Christology that Erdman sent it to two patristic, two patrists yeah. <laughs> to, to read. And um, there's sort of a humorous story attached to that. Uh, one of them is, um, uh, 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 what is it, J. Warren Smith from Duke. Yeah. And he was, he was one of the patristic scholars who read it. And he wrote this really, I mean, it was like uh, a 12-page single-space <laughs> <laughs> response to it. And he's, write, he's writing it as he's reading Mm. So it's like he goes, oh yeah, okay, they're surreal. I yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But at one point, he says something interesting. He said, um, he said Frank is uh, coming up with so many great quotes from the fathers. He said, I, I just find myself wishing he would pause and just describe who these people are and you know what mm. their location was. Well, of course, that that wasn't um, what the book was about. And so I asked Erdmans for permission to write to him and thank him for his very thorough and helpful and encouraging review. And so I said to him, I said, you know, reading your remark at the end, I said, it reminded me of how systematicians quote the fathers and how historians wish we did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Some accountability, right? For the yeah, exactly. So I'm not a patristic expert, but but um, I gained a great deal from the fathers. And so you will see that to some extent reflected in the system as well. Yeah. So, you know, correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but my, as a student of your theology, I would, I have told students, my own students, that I think the Christology marks a shift in your work in that I think it becomes more Lutheran because of Cyril. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is not quite fair to anyone, but since I've got you here, I'll, I'll put you on the spot in that. I know I happen to know, right. That your work starts with the Bloomharts who are Lutheran yeah. pietists, right? Yes. Yes. But yes. Bart then becomes a major theological guiding light, right? Yeah, that's right. Maybe the light. Yeah. And he's reformed, right? So in all these yeah. finer points of ish at issue in the debates, and he's going a reformed way. And I, I read a piece just recently that you did in response to Ricky Moore when you were editor at JPT and you were kind of working through the history of Sola Scriptura and the ways the Lutherans go one way with it and the Reformed another. And consistently, it seems to me, from a distance at least, reading you, that you tend to, when the questions are at stake, you go Reformed instead of Lutheran until the Christology. <laughs> and then there's, not that it's not Reformed, but there is, there's a definite a pronounced emphasis, I think, on that Cerulean, the one person who's united yes, these natures. Yes, so yes. I, do you think that's fair? Do you think that was a shift for you? And was it via Cyril or or what What was the pull for you? Yeah, that's, that's a really good insight. Um, uh, there is no question, but I, I'm following the Lutheran trajectory, God on a cross. Yes, yes. And that you know, you know how it is in the life of a theologian. Every now and then you come across an idea that is so beautiful 
it has to be true. <laughs> and, 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 and it's like, that becomes a permanent fixture in your thinking mm-hmm. that no matter how much you may change, this point won't change. Yeah. And God on a cross is one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Luther, no question about that. Yeah. Uh, and I've always looked at Bart's Christocentrism as being more Lutheran than Reformed. Mm. Uh, I think there's I think there's a sense in which he does put one foot <laughs> yeah. in, in the Lutheran camp. Um, and he really he comes at Calvin in his volume on election uh, uh, pre- precisely from a very strong Christocentric uh, yeah. uh, angle. Um, and so uh, but but going back to this God on a cross, uh, I, I just. Uh, you know, I, I remember if I can share a little story. Uh, I was on my way. I was on uh, on my way to uh, the Bart Center at, at Princeton Seminary. Uh, I was giving a paper on Bart, and uh, I was on a train, and there was a woman sitting uh, near me from India, and she struck up a conversation with me. And so she, uh, you know, I, I told her I was a Christian theologian. She asked me what I was doing. And so she said, could you tell me um, what, it, it just in you know, one or two sentences, you know, what is it that you find most important about Christianity? Mm-hmm. And I basically said, God on a cross. I said, uh, this is what I find to be most compelling is that God descended down into the depths of human darkness and despair. Mm-hmm and claimed us there, right there, yeah. right in that place where we need him most. And I've not found anything quite like that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I said, it is the one point that for me is most, is the greatest reason for my Christian identity. Yeah. Because if, if, because if, if God does exist, and I, and I know he does, but if God does exist, that's where I would expect him to be. Yeah. most profoundly present and revealed. And that's that's where the Bloomhearts find him to be. I mean, to oh, go back exactly to that part of the, the Bloomhearts. Oh, yes, very much so. And, and that's an influence on Bart. You know, Christ is victor. That's precisely right. Precisely in the, in, in the face of the demonic. Exactly, and, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So then, man, so many questions I want to ask you. Let me ask you about, we started talking about your systematics and writing it in a kind of, Pentecostal key, your your own voice as a Pentecostal theologian. So talk to us a little bit about what it means to be a theologian in a tradition, but for the sake of the church and the world. Mm-hmm. So R- Robert Jensen, a mutual acquaintance of ours, a mentor for me, he would often talk about how theologians have to be rooted in a particular tradition, but to do theology well, you have to do it for the sake of the whole church. That's right. That if, if theology ever turns in on itself and becomes merely a denominational affair, that's just propaganda, he would say. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But you can't do theology from nowhere. No one belongs to the whole that's church. You're right. rooted in a particular tradition. So that's right. he, was, he was always a Lutheran ecumenical theologian, right? He's a Lutheran because yeah. that's the spirituality that shaped him, the tradition. But he's speaking to the church. So talk to us a little bit about rootedness and openness, you know, the the. Yeah. The sense of, I know you're a Pentecostal theologian, but you're not only speaking to Pentecostals about Pentecostal things. So, yeah, what if you had a room full of 
young theologians or aspiring theologians, what would you say to them about that? Yeah, I, I, I would just echo those, those sentiments exactly. I think, um, you know, uh, Thomas Wynandy, for example, reviewed my Christology for the um, uh, International Journal of Systematic Theology. And he remarked, he said, it, it, I, he said, I found it remarkable how many voices from different traditions Maki was able to incorporate into his vision. Mm. I do see myself as an ecumenical theologian. It's, it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, where he says, um, Peter is yours, Paul is yours, Apollos is yours, we all belong to you. Yes. Uh, and, and they all belong to me. Yeah. <laughs> Cyril, uh, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, yes. they all belong, you know, Seymour, they all belong to me. Yes. They're, they're, they're all members of the body of Christ. And I have to do theology uh, in relation to those voices. But at the same time, like you said, we, we're not just floating up there in, you know, some kind of abstract um, identity. But we are rooted in a particular church tradition and in a particular church family. That's 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 where we're, you know, raised and we speak from that. And I've I've always uh, been inspired when I look at people like Jensen, you know, with his clerical collar and, you know, his Lutheran identity and uh, even Raymond Brown at Union. He always wore his priest collar all Mm. the time. Mm. It was very clear that he was a, a New Testament scholar of his church and of the church at large. And uh, these, you know, Brown Catholic and, and, and Jensen Lutheran, I mean, it was very clear that they were deeply connected and devoted to their church family, but from there to the larger body of Christ and, and, and from there for the sake of the world. And uh, uh, that has always been important to me. Yeah, that has always been very important to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those ways in which your your project, if it is taking Pentecost as the defining metaphor, then of course there have to be many voices, not not only those who yeah, speak the right. language of our tribe, right? Yeah. And this is this is one of the tragedies. I, I was talking with some friends recently about this, about how it's tragic to me, and I think a sign of our enemies' wiles, that our movement is so dynamic as a movement, but struggles to become a living tradition mm-hmm. because we tend to be biblicistic, not not biblical, which is sound, yeah, but yeah. biblicist. Mm-hmm. And this is a loaded term, but fundamentalistic when it comes to doing theology. Mm-hmm. I agree. And there's a kind of closeness to the way that we go about theological work, denominationally, that I think to in order to be a living tradition and not just a lively movement, mm-hmm. we truly have to be ecumenically open, right? And and I think we again, this is just Jensen talking here, but we tend to think that to be true to our tradition, we have to be false to the broader church. But if the church is truly the body of Christ upon whom the spirit rests, the spirit of Pentecost, then that can't be so. That I we can't be who we are as Pentecostals without listening to the voices of Lutherans and Catholics and Baptists and so on down the line. Exactly right. I, uh, I agree with that. Biblicism is inherently individualistic. Right. It, we are an authority unto ourselves. There's nothing from anyone else that I can learn. 
Um, and that is contrary to Pentecost. In Pentecost, we are members of a communion of saints and the spirit moves and speaks through the many voices. Um, and so if we do theology with that in mind, biblicism is simply not a possibility. Yeah. I need to hear other voices. There is so much I can learn from these other voices. Uh, but not only that, but to some extent, those voices have influenced me. I mean, you can't be involved in the body of Christ without being influenced uh, in some sense from other voices. And why pretend as though that influence doesn't exist? And, and why pretend as though all of this has come through you know, within the closet of your own personal enlightenment, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't show gratitude yeah. to others. It doesn't give credit and honor to whom credit and honor is due. Mm. Um, mm. It, 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 it assumes that you are an authority unto yourself. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, it, it denies the fundamental reality of the spirit of Pentecost. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more about that. I think, I want to ask you a question about how this relates to preaching and prayer and political action. But before we go there, I don't know if you remember, even remember writing this piece, but so Ricky Moore apparently had written to you a question about Sola Scriptura. And I think this was around 2000. So it's been, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, and you wrote a piece in JPT, I think may, it may have been Numa, but one of those two journals in which you, you kind of sketched out a bit of the history of Lutherans and Reformed on, and you talked about an ecumenical conversation you'd just been in with Catholics, I think, about sola scriptura and prophecy. So I wonder what what do you say in the systematics now? What would you say today, right? mm. whether you, what you wrote or not, about the 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 place of Scripture, the voice of the Spirit, mm. and listening to the dogmatic tradition of the Church. Mm. Like, mm. How, how should how are you processing that now yeah right exactly um yeah i like to talk about scripture as the the privileged voice of the spirit in the mm. churches but not the only voice mm. uh it can't be uh right. the the spirit speaks through uh, many diverse means um the spirit even speaks to us from the world <laughs> Yes, right. <laughs> There's this great passage in the dogmatics, uh, volume one, part one, where Bart says the voice of the spirit can come from anywhere. And, and, and when it comes, we better listen. <laughs> yes, <that's true. laughs> and uh, but 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 I do think uh, the scriptures are the privileged voice of the spirit and um, and and is the the means by which all the other voices are tested and evaluated uh, in terms of their relevance to us, in terms of their credibility and in terms of their relevance to us. So um, I give scripture a, a great deal of weight, but at the same time, um, you know, biblicism is simply not an option. Yeah, yeah. I often tell my students that the problem with biblicism is that it can't take scripture seriously as the voice of God. Mm. Mm. because it's it is the voice of god right it, well i mean and that's my you know jensen inflected theology speaking right like the and, and bonifer too right the the voice yeah. of the living christ is the preached scripture yeah that's right that's how christ addresses the church but i think biblicism at least i should maybe to be more exact 
the the toxic forms of biblicism reduces it to my word is identical with what God has said. What I take these words right, to mean right, right, is simply what right, they can right, mean. Right, Whereas right, what we need is an account of the, the scriptures are the spirits. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. This is the spirits yeah. voice that to which I listen. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, a couple of things. One is uh, one thing that Bart taught me is that um, the spirit speaking through the text is strength revealed in weakness. Mm. Uh, there's no way that scripture is adequate to capture the glory yeah. of, of the divine speaking. Uh, Calvin talked about accommodation, that God right. must stoop low to reveal himself through the weakness of human words and language. And so um, there is something happening between God and an individual that the mere rational meaning of this text can capture it's like scripture becomes an occasion mm-hmm. or something that no human words can capture to take place yeah there's something going on between us and god there that this weak instrument is being used to accomplish mm-hmm. but which this weak instrument cannot fully account for mm-hmm. and so there there is this 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 wonderful thing happening and so it's not a simple matter of you know rationally grasping the meaning of a text and applying it to our lives Uh, there's something much more participatory and mysterious taking place and transcendent taking place um than that it's not that cerebral it's 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 not that reducible to something we can grasp Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that I would want to start there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And I think the the ways in which scripture lives in preaching, in prayer, yeah, yeah, in testimony. Yeah. That's right. That's in reflection. Right. That's right. In study. I mean, I, I think we, we, we need to, often we talk about these things in abstract categories. I mean, I, I remember the moment it hit me. I, I was teaching a class. You know how this happens. I'm teaching a class and I made the comment that, in most Pentecostal denominations, like most evangelicals, we start with the doctrine of scripture. And as soon as I said that, that's, I said, that's not quite right. We don't start with the doctrine of scripture. We start with a doctrine of inspiration about scripture. Like that's one step removed from talking about scripture. Right? Yeah. And I realized in that moment that there's a there's a, an oddity and that often the higher our theory of scripture the less attentive we are to the actual use of scripture in worship, in preaching, in prayer, right? We talk about it in these abstract terms, thinking if if we have a high enough view of scripture's inspiration, that that secures my reading of it as authoritative. When in fact, the authority of scripture comes to bear in preaching, in prayer, in reflection. So talk to us a little bit about about your your sense of that, how, how this work you've done as a theologian over the years how does it come to bear for you and the authority of scripture come to bear for you in preaching in prayer in reflection yeah, that's, right. that's right i like this t- starting with inspiration um i like that idea uh uh and and you know even before that to talk about this grand story of god's self-giving in history and how scripture is merely an instrument in that larger um, communication of God with humanity. 
Um, and I and and I like um, thinking about inspiration the way um, uh, uh, the name just flew out of my head. I talk about him a lot. Um, um, Webster, John Webster, mm, yeah, talked about inspiration as sanctification. That it's God sanctifying this text mm-hmm. to play um, a unique role in the larger um, self giving to humanity um through the son and the spirit and and the spirit is sanctified as a vessel in 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 that self-giving and as you say it's something that gets interpreted uh in church practices in and and not just in preaching and teaching and also prayer but all forms of discipleship and self-giving and uh acts of love and witness and and so on so many different ways in which the uh, scriptural message gets embodied and interpreted in flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but it's all the scripture is being located within a much larger uh, divine self-giving and divine realization in the spirit uh, among us. And the scripture is, is an instrument in that. Yeah. And, and, and if you don't locate it in that larger framework, um, again, you get into a kind of fundamentalist, thing that you've got an idol of words on a page and if you can intellectually grasp it you've got it all yeah i mean to put it i mean this may be a little too simple but biblicism reduces the bible to a tool in my hands rather Mm. than an instrument in the spirit that's a good way yeah Mm -hmm. and what we need is an account of scripture that privileges it right it's central it's decisive Mm -hmm. but its authority lies not in my handling of it Yes. But it's not answering to the spirit who's speaking in it and through exactly. it. That's a good way of putting it. I so like you, you, let's talk a little bit about the political. You've written several pieces when you were an editor. I know right after 9-11, you wrote a piece about praying for the terrorists that caused no small stir. Yeah. It caused about <laughs> as much stir as an academic journal can cause, I think. An, an article <laughs> um, but you, you, you know, you've written also about party loyalty you've written a little bit about bart that line what is the line from bart about be a social democrat but not yeah that's right socialist is that right right? right. yeah yeah so maybe given our kind of i mean over the last five years maybe not unprecedented but certainly tumultuous political situation what would you say now right i mean to 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 us who you know kind of facing tribalism political upheaval the, this upsurge of christian nationalism i'd love for you to just talk to that a bit exactly i think uh, this this especially when white gets put on it uh yeah. of white christian nationalism which mm-hmm. a lot of it actually is i mean that's it's whether they use that word or not yeah and um talk about pentecost uh, i had a student who asked me once you know how would you respond to the white christian nationalists quote unquote Christian. Mm-hmm. And my response is that it directly contradicts Pentecost, that that it, it contradicts everything Pentecost stands for. Yeah. Um, you know, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit overflows the boundaries of Israel and and floods into the realm of the Gentile sinners. 
and, yeah. and claims them for God. <laughs> okay. And yeah. God said very clearly to Peter, what I have cleansed is cleansed. Okay. Don't you call it unclean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to make this decision. Okay. <laughs> Man. Okay. And and so all nationalisms are crushed yeah. through the spirit of Pentecost. And uh, the spirit overflows those boundaries. And any effort to, to erect them uh, is directly contrary to the spirit's work. Uh, there's no question about that. So they're, they're you know, nationalisms. And going back to your point, uh, you can't deny the political implications of the gospel, the political implications of, of the move of the spirit. Uh, I don't know how you can deny that. I mean, we are political by nature as human beings. Um, we, we structure our relationships in systems and, mm -hmm. and we relate to each other that way. And, and so if, you know, if, if anything, what I see in the book of Acts is a kind of institutionalization of the spirit, but not in the sense that the spirit is co-opted, but you do get, you know, at the Jerusalem council, um, the apostles making policy yeah. <laughs> out of this uh, yeah. new approach to the Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, that this, that what happened in chapter 10 was not just um, a momentary revival experience that is passing, mm. but we'll now, uh, we're, we're now going to definitely adjust our systems yeah. <laughs> to make room for the spirit. Uh, or, or maybe another way of putting it is uh, allow the spirit to be freed from the constrictions of our way of uh, of doing politics as the body of Christ. And so there's no question but that in the book of Acts, the spirit is upsetting our politics and redefining them mm -hmm. and exercising a revolutionary influence on them. And, and, and I think it has to start at home. Mm. I don't know how we can with any credibility challenge the politics of the world if our own politics are unjust yeah because we have to not only proclaim liberty but embody it yes otherwise our proclamation has no it carries no weight yeah. and so i would say a good place to start is at home let's get our politics right let's let's let the spirit have its way let's let the spirit uh, um, exercise the freedom uh to uh you know shape us into christ-like ways and um and then you know let's let's embody that for the world I, there, there's something about the anabaptist insight of the church as the just community mm -hmm. that bears witness to justice before the world mm -hmm. not just in words but in life that they are embodying a new way of 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 forming community uh, that challenges uh, the way the world is constructed. And uh, there's something compelling about that. Uh, I would definitely want to, to make that part of my political vision. Yeah, I wonder if that's not another way of talking about the promise of Babel, that there is a way of building. Yeah, that's right. That isn't idolatrous. There, there's a way of constructing towers in the world that do in fact open up to god rather than having to be overthrown they are they're securing the those who are weak i know 
you've been influenced by Brueggemann on that point and amongst others and, and Bart. Very much so. Um, Bart and Brueggemann, very much so. And and that, of course, is already there in, in the Bloom Hearts, at least Christoph, right, has a very clear worldly vision, right? And I think yes. you're the one, I th- I've heard, I think he's the one who said it, but I think I heard you say it first, that we have to have two conversions, right? Yeah, from that's the right. world to Christ and from Christ the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me remark on that. Um, it was really Christoph Blumhardt and Bonhoeffer. Uh, when I was a doctoral student at Basel, the, it was the Blumhardt-Bonhoeffer connection, this turn to the world mm. um, that really impacted me in a very powerful way. It, it became sort of a, a fixture in my thinking uh, and the kingdom of God as a reality that transcends the life of the church. Um, that's very important to me. Uh, since then, I've gained a greater appreciation for how this is to be based in the life of the church, uh, the, the Anabaptist vision of the church as embodying mm-hmm. its liberating politics. Um, but I've never lost the significance of that turn to the world, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that our vision of you know, the new, the new creation um, has got to um, directly affect our, our relationship to the world. And we've got to be able to be out there living that and bearing witness to that in a meaningful way. So as we start to wrap up here, I can't, uh, at least for this first conversation, I'm, I'm going to have you back. We'll, we'll talk some more because I want to talk specifically about Christology in depth, but I'm going to ask a few personal questions and just kind of let you testify as we wrap up. Um, one is a question about what it's like to have been a Pentecost and now a senior Pentecostal theologian in a tradition that doesn't really honor the work you do. You know, I, mean, I think this is, I mean, obviously there, there are folks like me who hold in high regard, who celebrate you, but in terms of the, when we, Think about the Pentecostal movement at large. Uh, I don't know that we honor our theologians as as we ought, mm-hmm. um, and I'm and I'm certain you haven't received the honor you you deserve from within your own house, right? The prophet being without honor in his own <laughs> his own hometown. Um, so I, I'd love to hear you just reflect for a minute on what it's what it's been like to serve a family that doesn't necessarily honor the work God has given you to do for them. Yeah, that, that's a very good question. I, I think that as a movement, um, we're getting there in, yeah. in the sense that because uh, we were talking about biblicism, um, this I, I think that Pentecostalism began with this idea of the Bible in practice um, without, uh, you know, fully realizing that moving from the Bible to practice uh, involves asking theological questions, okay, <laughs> in terms right. of in terms of the meaning of this text that we are called to embody, mm. uh, and so there is um, a, a, an interpretive move, uh, a hermeneutical move uh, from the Bible to practice that involves, uh, really should involve, deep thinking theologically. Yeah. And we have a whole tradition behind us that helps us. 
Um, and I don't think as a movement, we've quite gotten to the place of appreciating that. And we're, we're getting there. Mm. Uh, I'm encouraged by the number of college and seminary Pentecostal students who are hungry for theology and who want more of it and who are appreciative for the work that people like you and I are doing um, and who are reading that stuff, you know, and, and, and enjoying it. But I think it's going to be a while before we get there. I think as a movement, we haven't gotten there yet. And as people who are sort of breaking new ground, uh, it can seem lonely. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've taken great comfort in the colleagues that I've, people like yourself, that I've uh, formed common cause with. And, and that, has, that has given me a sense of community. Uh, it's meant a lot to me. Uh, I don't have uh, the size <laughs> of community that uh, theologians of other traditions will have. Uh, who who are who have been at the business of theology a lot longer than we have as a movement, um, but but it it still has comforted me. I I, I remember once uh, years ago I was I was, you know it, it was somewhere in the nineties, and I was visiting Chris Thomas's church and he called me forward to be prayed for, mm -hmm. for my work as a theologian. Yeah, and members of his board got around me and they were praying with a fervency. That God will anoint and bless my scholarship. Yeah, it's the first time that ever happened to me in a Pentecostal church. Yeah, and it moved me so deeply that I had tears just flowing uncontrollably down my cheeks. Mm. Um, it was the first time that I felt like my gift was being cherished. Yeah, not questioned, not afraid of not you know one you know being suspicious of yeah but but and, and constantly warning me of the dangers of yeah but, that's it right i mean the, the, there's yeah. this deep prejudice yeah. i mean i i remember you know i've been teaching almost 20 years 20 years next spring and of course a student before that in pentecostal schools virtually exclusively and it's i mean i i innumerable chapel services have been given to warnings about theological education. I mean, seminary chapels given to the warnings about theological education. There's so much anxiety, even within academics in Pentecostal circles about well, the work that we do. But that, I think we, if we just took a step back and looked, we realized that it's out of this life, the life of study, the life of devotion to reflection on God. Yeah. But adoration flows the charismatic life flows i mean it's not it's not by accident that you know, the charismatic renewal is breaking out at universities right yeah, and that the pentecostal movement is breaking out at bible schools yeah that's right that's there's right. something about that context of devoted study that sparks yes prayer and yes. and witness and and yeah. I, so it's it's a prejudice but it's it's a nonsensical prejudice, right? It's, it's a kind of, you know, Bonifer in letters and papers talks about how stupidity is more dangerous than evil because uh, evil can be resisted. Yeah. And th yeah, this yeah. is a stupid, I think a, in, in the technical sense, it's a kind of yeah, stupid, right. it in is. which we are, we're afraid of something that actually is a source, a source of life. And so I, I think a lot of folks that I still, many of my students still, and, people that I run into at church still have that anxiety about, can I, can I give myself to the serious study of theology and not lose 
my passion for God, you know, and it's always, it's always asked. And I found this, uh, what you just described, I found to be the case in my own life. Uh, my own theological study has tremendously enriched my faith and, and, and my, um, just enjoyment yeah, of, right. of gospel and of all that it can mean for life. Yeah. And I'll just how any, anyone who feels gifted to pursue this as a spiritual gift, that there are many rewards awaiting you and your job will be to spread the seed to the point where even non-professional theologians can benefit from your insights. Yeah, man, absolutely. I, I think a lot about, you know, Aquinas is the last few years of his life. He doesn't, he doesn't write, right. And the story is that he has this mystical experience and finds that his, his words, all that he's written is just straw. And one day, you know, call it the spirit, call it my sanctified imagination or my unsanctified imagination. But this image came to me of the straw being the straw in the cradle of Christmas, the straw where Jesus is laid. And that if you do theology, yes, it's just straw, but it's straw where the baby's right. life is sheltered, right? And that's right. Why would you despise that, right? And, and maybe maybe you get called beyond it. I mean, if you're Thomas and you have your mystical vision, you know, you can lay it aside. But man, just because it's straw doesn't mean it's worthless. Uh, a similar metaphor uh, Bart used. He said, um, you know, sometimes when I am pontificating theologically, he said, I, I, I sound like an ass. <laughs> but he said like the ass that carried jesus into jerusalem i seek always to carry a precious load <laughs> that's beautiful i I, didn't, I don't know i hadn't seen that from bart yeah, yeah so i'm in the bardian spirit somehow um, well, thank you for this frank this has been really 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 lovely i'm going to ask you to just say a quick prayer over us if you would and especially those who who kind of feel a tug toward theology in one way or another why don't, you, why don't you just uh, pray God's guidance on them? And thank you again for making time for this. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Lord, we're just so grateful. What a privilege it is to serve you, to be instruments of your glory in the lives of others. And what a marvelous gift it is to use our minds and our souls in the pursuit of greater understanding. And Lord, I pray, God, that everyone who is listening to this, who, feel, who feels that um, you, they are perhaps being called to a life of theological study and, and uh, teaching. And Lord, I just pray, God, that you will guide them, that you will provide for them, that you will be their source of enrichment every step of the way. We commit our lives to you, Lord. We commit our paths to you, and we give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to have you back. I'm going to hold you to it. We're going to talk about Christology next time, okay? I'll do it. Thanks a lot, Frank. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you too. Thanks.